Hello, friends, and welcome to Worldwide Crime. I'm your host, Eric, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Erica. Why do you sound like you just got done reading about your dog dying from a phone book? I'm just... I'm having a rough day, that's all. Tell me what's going on. Um... No. Why not? Because you'll think it's stupid. And rightfully so. I... I think it's stupid. So... Yeah. Try me. Um, I feel like I just told you that I'm not interested in talking about this. So give me, let's just, let's just move on. I said try me, bitch. Okay. Um, so I have, um, major depressive disorder, anxiety, PTSD, and, um, a lot of the symptoms of that are, you know, kind of flaring up on me and really it's over nothing. If you think I'm going to think you're stupid for anything to do with your mental health conditions, you think less of me than I thought you did. You didn't choose any of this, I understand that. You can't tell someone with a broken ankle to just stop having a broken ankle and everything will be all better. So, spill it. Look, there are lots of people in this world that are having real problems, real stresses, real difficulties. So I'm not going to insult their intelligence by talking about this because it's earth-shatteringly stupid. It really is. Why would you think others would consider this a competition? Every human has struggles. Everyone gets that. Did you consider that if you talk about whatever it is, people suffering from similar problems might feel less alone? No one is going to judge you, and if they do, is what they say going to make you feel worse than you already feel about yourself? People can learn from this, make them feel okay to talk about what's going on in their head. You made the decision to have a podcast. Lots of people have heard juvenile humor, which happens in our episodes. Lots of people have also never heard from someone suffering from what you do. So do us all a favor, stop avoiding it, and speak. I hate this, but okay. I will try to explain it, but I'm not going to get into any specifics. Sounds fair. Okay, so the missus has a long weekend this weekend, and we had planned you know, a camping trip. Turns out we had to cancel it. You know, we're both disappointed, just like, you know, anyone would be, I'd suspect. That's not the issue for me. Um, let me, okay, let me start by saying this first. There are three places on this planet I feel some sort of comfort. That's my truck, my camper, and my house. But she wants to go on a road trip to see her family and stuff, which, which is cool. You know, it's normal to want to do stuff like that, right? I love her family. They're amazing people. These people are like what's right with the world. That's how good they are. But going there is what I'm struggling with. I have like crippling avoidance issues. And asking me to go on a trip like this is like asking someone with a snake phobia to hold a snake. Then to make things worse, you know, it brings her down, makes her family feel like it's them I don't want to see. And that's not true. It's the furthest thing from it. And I completely understand why 
you know, they would feel that way. Um, when I'm, when I'm not in one of my three places, I'm hyper vigilant and kind of panicky. That really becomes exhausting. Then I have to deal with the fact that everyone knows I'm uncomfortable because I, I don't really hide it well, which naturally, you know, kind of brings all them down. And all of these negative feelings in myself and everyone around me are entirely because of me. Then all those, you know, bad feelings and thoughts begin to, you know, compound and I either end up having a panic attack or I take sleeping pills to try to sleep as much as possible and make time go by faster until I could be in you know, one of my three places. Like I said, really stupid. And no one wants to hear about it, but you had to force the issue. Okay, but it's not you that is causing all these bad thoughts and feelings. It's your mental health disorders that are at fault. Can't you make that distinction? Oh, I I'm fully aware, but I can't help it. Knowing it makes me feel even more shitty in a way. I've been through a bunch of different, like, therapy and pills all through the VA. And I've learned a lot about these issues, and it's, like, bittersweet. I can at least, you know, now put a name to all this stuff. But it hasn't changed the fact that it's still there. I've had this for most of my adult life, and it wasn't until a couple years ago that I found out what was causing it. I've known for a long, long time that there's got to be something wrong with me, and now it's confirmed. It's like I said, it's, it's bittersweet. Can we actually move on from this and talk about the upcoming story, please? I'm sorry you feel this way, and I'm sorry for everything else you deal with, and yes, we can talk about the story. Who are we covering this week? Today is part one of a two-part story about the toy box killer. Ah, I hate cliffhangers. I could just go into your save files and read them for myself, but I know you wouldn't like that. <laughs> when has me not liking something ever stopped you from doing it anyway? It does all the time, and I usually give you a bunch of shit about it. I don't want to this time because I want to get into the story. So, do that. The small retirement community of Elephant Butte, New Mexico is a mostly uneventful place. In 1999, it had between 750 and 1,000 residents, and most of them were 65 years old or older. Crime was non-existent, so many of the residents never locked their doors. When people stopped at the town store, keys were often left in the ignition of their vehicles as they shopped. It was as safe and quiet a place as anywhere else in the United States. On March 22nd of that year, however, things would take a drastic change for the worse. A woman, naked, terrified, and savagely beaten was running through the streets. She still had bindings on her. She burst through the front door of one of the quiet and peaceful homes, crying for help. The elderly couple living there were shocked in a way that they would never have expected as they were sitting on their couch and watching TV. The woman was bleeding and she looked very weak. The man got up from the couch and went to fetch her something to cover her body. The woman that lived in the home reached for the phone and dialed 911. 
After police arrived, the woman told them she had escaped from a gynecological table she had been bound to. She recalled being surrounded by sex toys and torture devices. She told police that her captor was a local man by the name of David Parker Ray. Let's go back in time to Ray's early life, because that's where the nightmare that affected possibly hundreds of people began. David Parker Ray was born on 6 November 1939 in Bella, New Mexico. His parents were Cecil and Nettie Ray. Cecil and Nettie were poor. This caused them to move the family with Cecil's mother and father who owned a small ranch where David had grown up with his sister, Peggy Ray. Cecil was an abusive drunk that targeted his family when drinking, and he was rarely home. David's grandfather was a deeply religious and ferocious disciplinarian. For David, however, the physical and emotional abuse was just part of his childhood. His father provided him with sadomasochistic pornography, hundreds of magazines and videos throughout David's childhood. He was socially awkward and bullied savagely as a kid. Here we go again with a jacked up childhood creating a monster. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's infuriating and heartbreaking at the same time. I I wonder, I haven't done it myself, but I wonder what the backgrounds look like, like the childhoods of these mass shooters that have been sweeping across the country and making the news. It's it's annoying. You want to hate them, but you got to wonder what caused them to be the way that they are. All this lent to David's growing fascination with the pornographic material. After high school, David joined the United States Army, where he worked as an auto mechanic. After four years, he received an honorable discharge and moved to Elephant Butte. There, he would work jobs as needed fixing vehicles for the town residents and surrounding area. David would marry and divorce four times. From those marriages, he would have two children, one of which he would go on to have a unique relationship. Fast forward back to that fateful night in 1999. The woman, naked, scared, and still wearing a metal dog collar connected to a six-foot chain, was 22-year-old Cynthia Vigil. She had been held against her will and raped and tortured for three days before she escaped and found herself lying on a stranger's living room floor, void of any clothing. What police found odd is she could not remember much of anything about her captivity. She was dazed, and to the police it occurred to her that she was clearly under the influence of some sort of drug. There was one thing Cynthia was certain of, and that was David Parker Ray was her captor. Cynthia had a rough childhood herself that led to her involvement in selling drugs and prostitution. These activities rarely took place in Elephant Butte, but in nearby Truth or Consequences, it was frequent. Cynthia was usually found in Albuquerque or Truth or Consequences, and the latter is where the nightmare with David Parker Ray began for her. Truth or Consequences is the name of a town? It is. Um, I think it's actually a cool name for a town. I'd love to know the backstory on how that came to be. Well, maybe we'll cover that in part two, but as of right now, it is Thursday and we're supposed to leave for this vacation thing at one, so I'm all stressed about time and stuff. So we're just going to get through this episode and maybe we'll talk about it next week. Cynthia had guidelines she would follow to protect herself. One such guideline is to never get into RVs. One evening, however, something compelled her to go against her better judgment when a man driving an RV pulled up to her on the street in truth of consequences. 
desperately needing money. She climbed inside. Not long after, she was sitting on the sofa in the RV when suddenly she felt handcuffs click tightly around her left wrist. Cynthia sprang up from the couch and made her way for the door when she heard the man inside the RV say, Cindy. This was curious to Cynthia. She had given the man a fake name, and Cindy was a nickname that Cynthia often went by. In a horrific coincidence, the man was not speaking to Cynthia at all. He was saying the name of his accomplice, Cindy Hindi. Cynthia reached for the door, but never got a chance to open it. Cindy had walked from behind a curtain in the RV and shocked Cynthia with a cattle prod. Cynthia can remember being drugged into the back of the RV and handcuffed to a cabinet. Ray then climbed behind the driver's seat and Cindy to the passenger seat, and they began driving. Cynthia was terrified, but keeping enough of her wits to start thinking of ways to escape. She unscrewed the cabinet door and waited for the RV to come to a stop. As soon as she was able, she was going for the door and running. Cynthia crouched with her hands still bound behind her back when she suddenly found herself tumbling forward as the RV came to an abrupt stop. Cynthia did not know why the brakes were hit so hard, but this caused her plans to go up in smoke. Cindy was the first to notice that Cynthia was no longer secure. Cindy hurried to the back of the RV where Cynthia was just starting to stand up from the floor. Cindy pulled a gun just as Ray was pulling over to the side of the road. Ray then started heading to the back. Cynthia recalls Ray coming up to her. Then everything went black. Cynthia slowly came to. Her eyesight began to clear as she looked around. She felt terror consume her body. She was in a room surrounded with every imaginable torture device and sex toy hanging from walls and covering countertops. She was strapped tightly to a gynecological table and she was completely nude. As Cynthia was struggling to get free, she saw David Parker Ray appear as he walked up behind her. He then looked at her, grinned, then walked over to a tape recorder laying on a nearby table. He looked back at her again as he hit play and calmly walked out of the room. For the next 55 minutes, she had to listen to the recorded words of David Parker Ray give a detailed description of what she was about to endure. What the shit? He recorded a tape to play for his victims. He did. Um, and I actually listened to about a third of that tape before I had to shut it off because it is monumentally gross, especially if you psychologically try to put yourself in the victim's shoes. It's horrifying. Uh, this guy was completely gross. And I was going to use some of the audio from those tapes in this episode, but I decided against it just because of how graphic and fucked up. It is. I think that's a good call. Just share a link to it on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash worldwide crime podcast. People can then choose if they want to listen to it. I'll do that, but I'm going to caution everybody right now that if you're easily triggered or a victim of sexual trauma or kidnapping, anything like that, you might want to skip this one because it is rough to listen to. Even for me. And I got a pretty strong stomach when it comes to stuff like that. As she listened, she struggled with all the strength she had, trying to break free. But it didn't work. She was stuck, and there was nothing that she could do about it. Ray recorded this disgusting audio tape in 1993. Cynthia was abducted in 1999. 
Ray had gotten tired of telling each victim what his plans were. So it became routine that Ray would play this tape for each of his victims. Cynthia was held against her will, repeatedly raped, tortured, and beaten for three days before the opportunity for escape presented itself. Cindy had accidentally left the keys to Cynthia's chains on a nearby table after a rape and torture session. Cynthia was somehow able to reach the table with one of her legs and pull the table closer. Using her toes, she picked up the keys and dropped them into her hand. While Cindy's back was turned, Cynthia began a desperate attempt to unlock the padlock securing her wrist to the torture table. Success. She got one of her hands free. As Cynthia was struggling to get her other wrist free of her constraints, Cindy turned around and saw what was happening. Cindy grabbed a nearby bullwhip and started striking Cynthia with it. In blinding pain, Cynthia was able to keep her focus and get her other hand free. Naked and with a metal collar around her neck attached to a chain, Cynthia grabbed an ice pick from the floor and stabbed Cindy. Cindy went down, writhing in pain. Cynthia unlocked the door to her freedom and ran as fast as her battered body could go. Yo, this chick is a superhero. It's like she went through Sears school in the military. I hope you're going to tell us what Sears school is, instead of assuming everyone already knows. Well, what do you think it is? I haven't a clue. That's why I said what I said. But if I had to guess, it's some sort of escape school or something like that. Oh, you came up with that based on the fact that Cynthia is escaping. So that's, you know, kudos to you, I guess, for that. But yes, SEERS is an acronym. It stands for Survive, Evade, Resist, and Escape. Um, it teaches military personnel, contractors, and anybody who works in foreign lands to survive no matter the surroundings and escape if they're held prisoner by an opposing force of some kind. So yeah, good guess. You could have told us without being a dick. But zebras can't change their stripes, so I get it. As Cynthia was running down a secluded road, a car approached. Cynthia flagged down the motorist and began begging for help. The driver, uneasy about Cynthia's appearance, rolled her window up, locked her doors, and drove away. Cynthia continued running until she came across a manufactured home with the inside lights still on. She burst through the front door, and that was where this story began. Cynthia lay on the living room floor, bloody, weak, and terrified. Police apprehended Cindy and Ray as they were driving around the small community of Elephant Butte looking for Cynthia. She was safe now, but as Cynthia lay there waiting for the ambulance to arrive, she must wonder just how many victims had not been as lucky. One question that begs an answer is how David Parker Ray was able to do this for so long and not get caught. There is no simple answer, but what we do know is that not only did Ray take the time to create a detailed and disgusting introduction tape to be played for each new victim, but converted a 22-foot cargo trailer into a rape and torture chamber he named Satan's Den. Ray's home was near Elephant Butte Lake. Authorities believe this is where a vast majority of his victims were disposed of. The lake had two different species of catfish, which grew to be very large. Authorities believe that predation due to these catfish made any hopes of finding bodies impossible. Police searched the lake thoroughly after Ray and Hindi's apprehension, but found no evidence, no bodies. Although in Ray's tape, 
he clearly says that killing victims was never his first choice. He also claims that he wouldn't hesitate if it became necessary. Cynthia's story is one of horrendous torture, rape, and all-around savagery, but also heroism. And Cynthia would soon find that she wasn't the only survivor with a story to tell. Sorry to keep this so short, guys. That's the end of uh, the first part of this series. Um, I apologize because it is kind of short, but we'll be back next week with the conclusion of the David Parker Ray story. I got shit to do, so I got to get out of here. Love you guys. Thank you for all your support. Sorry about the rant at the beginning that was done yesterday, which was Wednesday, and I was just having a really bad day, and I do apologize, but... Looking back on it, I wanted to get rid of the entire conversation, but I think Erica's right. It might help someone to hear that they're not the only one going through something. So if that did help you, please let us know on our Facebook page. I can speak from my own personal experience that when I talk to people that suffer from PTSD or major depressive disorder, psychosis, anxiety, whatever the case is, I could relate to them and hearing their stories and their struggles makes me feel, I guess, more normal, more accepted by a group. Not to say that friends and family don't try to be supportive. They just don't know exactly what kind of support that you need. So love the ones that are in your life, hold them close, understand that when they speak to you and try to help, they're coming from a good place, even though what they say may not be very helpful. And until the next episode, guys, appreciate y'all listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Fare thee well, listeners. Fare thee well. What are you phoning in from a Renaissance festival? Shut your big fat stupid face. Oh, well, I think that line actually came from Hamlet. Shutty. <laughs> See you guys. Hamlet, why do you have to be such a pretentious asshole? And it would probably do you well to go to a Renaissance festival. Expand at Walnut and call it.